This morning we continue the series that we started last week titled The Altar. And this is a series about encountering God. And I've called this series The Altar because in the Old Testament the altar was essentially a place where people would encounter God. Where people would meet God. So it wasn't unusual in uh, Old Testament times in ancient Israel. It wasn't unusual to see altars in certain places uh, throughout uh, the, the country. And people would build altars because that's how they would meet God. And God would tell them, build me an altar here. And so these were God's people. And that was common. But we've been uh, basing this, uh, all the messages in this series in a verse in Isaiah 19, Isaiah 19, 19, that describes a scenario that's a little bit, uh, really a little bit shocking uh, when, when you think about this. Uh, Isaiah 19, 19 says, In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt and a monument to the Lord at its border. So while it was common to see altars in ancient Israel, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't common at all to see them in Egypt. Now, maybe Egypt and, and other pagan nations would have altars to their gods. They were false gods. But Isaiah was prophesying about a time where there would be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt. And uh, I've been saying in the past couple of weeks, uh, first two weeks of the series, that Egypt back then is, uh, very similar to what, was very similar to what our society is today. In fact, in that same chapter 19 of Isaiah, Isaiah describes Egypt as a, a drunkard staggering around in his vomit. It was a, it was a really a, a, a world, it was a society in which there was a severe moral breakdown. There was a lot of sin, a lot of pride. And we see that today in our culture. Uh, we see a moral breakdown. We see a, a, a world in which sin is rampant. But just like in Egypt, just like in Egypt, there was a, uh, in the heart of Egypt, there was an altar to the Lord. I believe that God is calling us today as Christians not to separate ourselves from, from the culture. Surely we have to be separate from the ways of the world. We talked about this last week. But we're in this world. Uh, we're not of it, Jesus said. We're, we're in this world, but we're not of it. So I, I believe that just like in Egypt, God is calling us to build an altar in the middle of this sinful world. And so the big idea of this entire series has been that uh, San Angelo needs an altar, a place to meet God, and God is calling us to build it. I believe that God is calling us to build an altar here in this world, here in this culture, to God, and an altar that is for the good of the community, for the community to come and to know God, to meet God. Our mission is to help people find God, to help people meet God, as it were. And we can do this by building an altar to God right here in San Angelo. And so we talked the first week about an altar of repentance. It has to start with repentance. Last week I spoke to you about an altar of holiness. And today I want to talk to you about an altar of worship. You know, altars appear throughout the Bible in many different forms. In fact, as we study the scriptures, we see that there are different types of altars. For example, there was an altar of encounter when, when the Lord met, met Jacob. You know the story of Jacob. Uh, if you know the story, you know that the Lord met Jacob in a time of crisis for him. And the next day, he built an altar at that same location. Uh, we read in the scriptures... In the scriptures about altars of forgiveness, there's an altar of forgiveness. This is a brazen altar in the tabernacle where sacrifice was offered as an advanced 
testimony that there would once there would be a once and for all sacrifice in God's Son Jesus. So uh, an altar was a place of encounter. It was a place of forgiveness. An altar in the Old Testament was also a place of covenant. An altar was built where God made a covenant with Abraham. He was Abram back then. And that land was, was, was sealed as a timeless promise to Abraham and to his offspring. We find that altars in the Old Testament were also places of intercession. For example, the prophet Joel called for intercession um, by leaders on behalf of the people and uh, for their devastated country, and they built an altar of intercession. But today I'm going to talk to you about a, a, an altar of worship, because in the Old Testament, altars were also a place of worship. In fact, this was the most common altar that was built by people to acknowledge God and to acknowledge their, their praise and their worship of God. And so they had an altar in which they would offer incense. This is the holy place where the priest would offer worship to God on behalf of the people, on behalf of themselves as priests, by, by uh, offering incense to God. This is the altar of incense. Now, what we know now is that now that we're in the new covenant, we don't have to worship God with incense anymore. We don't have to worship God by burning incense because now our worship, the Bible says, is a sweet incense to God. It's our worship that rises up and God smells that fragrance of our worship, and He's pleased with it. And so it, this is the altar I want to talk to you the, uh, about today, the altar of worship. And we're going to read in John 12, beginning with verse 1. John 12, 1 reads like this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served... While Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Remember what I said, the altar of worship, the priest would offer incense to God as worship. But now, here's what's happening. She comes and she pours this perfume on Jesus' feet. And the house is filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now let's go on to verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Verse 7, leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now let's look at the background, see what's going on here. There's a dinner that is given in honor of Jesus. This is in Bethany where Lazarus lived with his sisters, Mary and Martha. And this dinner was given... In honor of Jesus. How many of you ever had a dinner given in your honor? Maybe it's your birthday. Your family, go out, you all go out to eat and, and everybody uh, celebrates your birthday. And if it's one of those places where the, maybe the uh, service come and they sing, the waitresses, waiters come and sing. Maybe they put a hat on you. It's a Mexican restaurant and make a big deal. And it's, it's quite fun. We, we enjoy that. And, and we receive that because, you know, birthdays are, are special, uh, special occasions. We were at a restaurant one time here in San Angelo, 
and uh, the servers came, and I forget whose birthday it was, but they came to sing happy birthday. And some, some restaurants have a real elaborate song that they sing, and they practice it. This restaurant apparently did, because it was pretty, it, it, was, it was pretty hard, I mean, to listen to. Uh, we're standing there, and uh, they're standing around us, and they're singing in different keys, really out of tune. And uh, my wife looked at me and said, should we tell them we're both choir directors? I said, no, let's not do that. <laughs> let's not do that. But, uh, you know, it was still a, a, good, a good event. So a dinner was given in honor of Jesus. And Jesus didn't say, no, 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 don't bother yourself. He accepted this. He accepted this dinner. He accepted the, the honor that was being bestowed on him. Now, uh, this uh, passage tells us that Lazarus was the one whom Jesus raised from the dead. So certainly he had reason. He had reason to honor Jesus. And uh, he's, I mean, he was dead. Now he's alive. He's, he's fully alive. He's eating. Uh, but there were others also, like, like Mary. We're going to read about Mary, who wished to bestow honor on Jesus. And Jesus accepts this. Jesus accepts our praise. Now, a lot of times when, when people want to honor us and say nice things about us, it embarrasses us. But Jesus received this praise. He received this honor. In fact, he really expected it because Jesus says that we find the Gospels that the father, and he told this to the Samaritan woman that he met at the well in John 4, that the father is looking for true worshipers that will worship him in spirit and truth. So he's looking for people to honor him. He's looking for people to praise him, to worship him. On the day of the triumphal entry, which happened just a few days after this event we're reading about now, on the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem triumphantly, uh, triumphantly he told his disciples that uh, if the people would stop shouting, that the rocks would take over and would shout praises to him. Because the people were telling, uh, the disciples were telling Jesus, tell the people to be quiet, they're being loud, it's obnoxious, they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It is too loud, it's not, it's not very reverent, it's not very cultured. Tell them to be quiet, and that's when Jesus said, if they be, or if they stay quiet, then the rocks will cry out. So Jesus is... Uh, accepting the praise. He's, in fact, even expecting the praise. And the purpose of the dinner was to honor Jesus. And I want to tell you today that the purpose of our gatherings, like this morning when we come together, is to give Him praise. And that's our first point this morning, that the purpose of our gatherings is to focus on Jesus and to honor Him with our praise and with our worship. That's why we're here today. That's why we gather every Sunday and when we gather in other days through, throughout the week. That's why different churches throughout the city, throughout the, the country, throughout the world are gathering. The purpose of our gatherings is to focus on Jesus and to honor Him with our praise and worship. Our worship services are all about Jesus. They're all about His Word. You know, we, we come and we have God's Word as a center of our gathering. It's all about his presence because when we worship him, our corporate worship creates an ambiance where the Spirit of God moves. And so when we come together, it's all about Jesus, about his word, about his presence moving in our hearts and our lives, about his lordship over us. So we gather to praise Him. We gather to study His Word. We gather to hear from Him. We gather to surrender our lives to Him. 
That's why after every, every sermon, we have a time of response. Sometimes we come up here, sometimes we pray up there, or in your seats, you stay in your seats. But we have a time of response to, to the word, because it's not just about singing to him, but it's also about surrendering to his lordship. So worship is more than the songs we sing when we're together. I mean, it certainly includes that, certainly a part of that. But worship is about giving Jesus our best, whether in a gathering like today, in a worship service, or throughout the week in our daily lives, it's about giving Jesus our best. I follow John Piper on Twitter, and a couple of weeks ago, he, um, he said this on Twitter, The reason God seeks our praise is not because He won't be fully God until He gets it, but that we won't be happy until we give it. And so even though we're honoring Him, it blesses us. To honor Him, to worship Him, it blesses us. And the reason this is true is because we were made to worship God. We weren't designed to live for ourselves. I know a lot of people end up that way, and sometimes we're tempted in that direction. But we weren't made that way. We were designed to live for God. Satan wants us to think that we can live for ourselves But we all have a space in our hearts that only God can fill. And until we fill that space with God, and until we learn to live for Him and worship Him, then we won't be fulfilled. We won't be totally happy and fulfilled. We'll only experience frustration. We'll experience despair. So worship is for God's glory, but it's also for our benefit to help us find fulfillment in Christ. So we won't be happy. We won't be fulfilled until we learn to worship God, whether we do it in our gatherings or throughout the day. We were made to worship God. This is the focus of our of our gatherings, to focus on Jesus and to worship him. So as we continue this story, John 12, 3 tells us then that Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And as I just said, when Mary poured out this perfume, it was oil. When she poured out this oil, the aroma just filled the entire house. Reminiscent of the Old Testament altar of incense, that holy place where the priest would offer worship to God on behalf of all the people and themselves. Now, the nard that is mentioned here is the oil of a nard plant, which uh, even today grows in, in India, in the Himalayas, uh, north of India. It still grows. This plant still grows. And the oil comes from the root and the spike of the nard plant. That's why some translations may say uh, spike nard. So Mary poured out what was roughly a pint. Some, some scholars say it was 11 ounces. Others say it was 15 or 16 ounces. Could have been anywhere between those. But in any case, it was an expensive act of worship for her. What she poured out on Jesus' feet as her worship to him uh, was, it was an expensive uh, perfume. And that takes us to our, our second important a point today, and that is this, that true worship will always cost us something. True worship will always cost us something. Mary 
exhibited this unrestrained love and devotion to Jesus. It went against personal cause for her. It went against her being concerned about how she was going to be perceived, and she was perceived in a negative manner. Her extravagant act of worship cost her a lot. This, this nard was her life savings. This nard was her retirement investment. She, she could have sold that and, and she could have retired on that. But she gave it all to Jesus in worship. So her worship cost her financially. I don't know how she uh, cared for herself after that. I don't know what she did to have something to live on in her, the sunset of her life. Because that cost her financially. But it also cost her in the way that other people saw her. It cost her in her reputation. Judas, one of the disciples, called her action wasteful. In fact, the other parallel passages, the story we're reading is in John, but Matthew tells the same story. Mark tells the same story. And uh, they, they tell us that the other Disciples joined in with Judas and saying, you know, this was a waste of money. That money could have been used to feed the poor. And this money could have been used for other, for better reasons. This was a waste of money. And, uh, and they might have seen her as being over the top. And really, that's overly extravagant. I mean, you could just pour a little bit of oil on Jesus' feet and, and he would get the idea that you love him. But to give it all to him, that's a little bit much. You don't have to go overboard in how you worship God. You don't have to go overboard in what you give to God. You know, just give the tithe. Just give the tithe to the penny and you're okay. Don't, don't get crazy here in, in worshiping Jesus. But the reality is that true worship will cost us something. David, in the Old Testament, knew the cost of true worship. On one occasion... David was looking for a place to build an altar to the Lord. And now David had made this terrible mistake. In fact, it was a sin against God when he took a census of the fighting men of Israel. This was so distasteful to, to his uh, commander when he told his commander, I want you to count all the fighting men. His commander didn't even finish the job because he knew that that was a uh, 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 command that David gave him that was rooted in pride. The only reason David was doing this was because he was, he, you know, he was feeling proud of himself being the king of this great nation. And so it was something that was, that was rooted in pride when he, when he commanded the census be taken. And because of this, God judged the nation of Israel. And he sent a plague that killed 70,000 people. 70,000 people died because of David's Pride because of his sin. But because David repented, he repented of this, and God allowed him to build an altar and to offer a sacrifice to stop the plague. So then God speaks to David and he tells him, I want you to go to the house of a man named Arayuna. And David went to his house. When, when Arayuna saw David and all his men approaching, then, then the man said, Well, uh, my Lord, my King. In fact, the Bible says he bowed low before him. He said, my Lord, my King, why are you coming to, to my house? And, and David says, I've come to buy your threshing floor and to build an altar to the Lord in that place. Because that's what God had told him to do. Go to uh, Reuna and, and uh, build an altar on his threshing floor. So he went and he says, I came to build an altar on your threshing floor. 
He says, I, I came to buy your threshing floor and to build an altar there. Immediately, this man said to David, my Lord, my king, just take it. I'm not going to charge you for it. You're the king. I'm your humble servant. Just take it. Use it as you wish. In fact, I'll give you oxen for the burnt offering. And you can use the threshing boards that I have. You can use the yokes. I mean, whatever you want, it's yours. Build the altar. And, and in fact, he said, may the Lord receive your sacrifice. May the Lord receive your offering. I just give it all to you. But look at uh, David's response in 2 Samuel 24. 24. But the king replied to Reuna, No, I insist on buying it. For I will not present burnt offerings to the Lord my God that have cost me nothing. See what he's saying? I'm not going to worship God with an offering if it didn't cost me something. I will not present burnt offerings to the Lord my God that have cost me nothing. So David paid him 50 pieces of silver for the threshing floor and the oxen. And verse 25 says that he built an altar there to the Lord and he sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the Lord answered his prayer for the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. But see, he knew that the, uh, the true worship will cost us something. Mary knew that true worship was going to cost her something. Now for us today, it may cost us effort. Some people don't want to pay the price of coming into a gathering and a worship service and put forth the effort of singing and of worshiping God. And for some people, it, I, I think their attitude might be, well, God, if you want to bless me, then just go at it, hit me, something. But they don't realize that it takes effort. The Bible calls us to strive to enter through the narrow gates. In other words, there's effort involved. And so there's effort involved in much of our service to God and certainly in our worship to God. It may cost you effort. Are you willing to pay that price of putting forth the effort to touch heaven with your worship? It may cost us focus. You know, God has given us the ability to focus on, on what is at hand. It may cost us the, the focus that it takes to put our phones away so we can worship Jesus totally focused on him. You know, we use our focus in other areas. Why not in worshiping God? It may cost us reputation. We need to stop worrying about what others think of us when we abandon ourselves to worship God. Have you ever seen somebody who abandons himself or herself to worship God? They don't care. They don't care that people are looking at them, hands lifted up. And maybe as the presence of God fills our hearts and our lives, maybe even tears streaming down their face. They don't care. You've got to be willing to, uh, to pay the price of, I'm not concerned about what others think of me. I want to worship God. And isn't it interesting that people who abandon themselves to serving and worshiping God are often the targets of criticism? Well, that's, you know, like, like Mary was. So well, that's just too much money. She just wastes, she's so wasteful. Well, that's just over the top. He's so loud, she's so loud. Why do they have to be so emotional when people... Say, well, y'all are just so emotional. Why do you have to be so loud when you pray? My roommate in college used to make fun of me. And uh, he said, so does God hear you better when you like, get real emotional and pray? And I said, no, he doesn't. But uh, you know, it's not so much for his benefit, it's for mine. But I always go back to Hebrews 5.7. Look with me at Hebrews 5.7. This is what 
Here's what we read about Jesus. During his earthly life, talking about Jesus, during his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Now, there's a little juxtaposition of phrases there that's very interesting because the first part of the, of the verse tells us that he uh, prayed with loud cries and tears. And then the second part tells us that he was very reverent. But it's in our mind, we think reverence means quiet and still. And there's certainly a time for that. But what we see that is that Jesus, during his earthly life, during his days, not, not just one time, not just one time, but this is the way that he, he did it based on what the scripture tells us, that he cried with loud cries and tears. He prayed with loud cries and tears. And when I read that, I think about Jesus, who, Jesus, who is God, Jesus, who is the creator of the world. And I think, well, Jesus, that sounds a little like you're out of control. Can you calm down? It makes me feel bad. Like Jesus is crying out loud. He's, you know, he's loud cries and tears. I'm like, Jesus, get a hold of yourself. But I think he's teaching us something here. That it'll cost us something when we approach God. If we want to touch heaven, if we want to worship God the way that Mary did, it's going to cost us something. And it may be that, that we have to lay aside concern for our reputation and just approach God from the bottom of our hearts. So it may cost us reputation. It may cost us money. In the Old Testament, on more than one occasion, God told the Israelites, no one is to appear before me empty-handed. Don't appear before me empty-handed. So when we come to, to God, when we come to worship, we bring our offering, we bring our tithe, plus our offering. And we bring our worship, we bring our lives. We don't appear empty-handed because true worship will cost us something. And maybe some of you today have not been paying the price. Maybe some of you will, will come to church and say, you know, I don't know, the service is kind of dead. And, you know, it's not so much that the service is dead. It's that you're not able to put into it what, what you need to, to pay the price of worship so that you can touch heaven this morning. So are you paying the price of worship? And I want to look at one more thing this morning about Mary's worship, about what we're called to do. And that is this, that true worship is a beautiful thing. True worship is a beautiful thing. Mary's act of love, Mary's worship, of Jesus was public. This was out for everybody to see. That's why she got criticized. It was spontaneous. It was sacrificial. It was lavish. We know that. It was personal. And it was unembarrassed. I mean, she, she just worshipped Jesus in that manner. And uh, of course, she was criticized. And when Jesus heard the criticism of Judas and the rest of the disciples, of the disciples, then the parallel passage in the book of Matthew tells us, this in Matthew 26, 10. But how Jesus defended her and what he said in his defense of Mary. He said to them, aware of this, this is Matthew 26, 10. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. She has done a beautiful thing to me. Sacrificial, lavish, Personal, 
extravagant. Jesus said, it's a beautiful thing. Because true worship, the kind of worship that the Father is looking for, He's looking for worshipers who will worship Him, true worshipers that will worship Him in spirit and in truth. True worship is a beautiful thing. When you in the privacy of your home can spend time to worship Jesus, it's a beautiful thing. I was challenging our worship team a couple of weeks ago. I said, hey, your worship leaders, all of you, worship Jesus throughout the day. Spend time during the week listening to worship music and be a worshiper, not just on Sundays. Be a worshiper throughout the day. Start the day with a time of worshiping Jesus. It's a beautiful thing. When we come together and we, we sing and we offer to Jesus, not just the words of the song that a songwriter wrote. You know, the way I see this is that the songs that we sing are just a beginning for us. They work to stir our hearts. I mean, there's some songs that just really bless me. And I know you have songs that bless you. And they, they work to stir our hearts. And they work in a gathering like this. They work to, to get all our minds Focus on the same thing because we're all singing the same words. We're all singing the same lyrics. So that's great. But to me, that's just the beginning because then we have to offer to Jesus beyond that the sacrifice of praise, which the writer to the Hebrew says is the fruit of our lips. So I want to offer to Jesus the fruit of my lips, not just the fruit of the lips of the songwriter. The songs that we sang today are beautiful songs and somebody wrote them. God inspired them and, and, and they, they, they wrote those songs and, and, and they bless me. But I don't want to just worship God with the fruit of that songwriter's lips. I want to offer God the fruit of my lips because the Bible says that's what we're called to do. And when I do that and when you do that, when together we offer praise to God, it's a beautiful thing. It doesn't have anything to do with the music being beautiful. I've been in services where the music is not that great, but the worship is a beautiful thing because it comes from the hearts of people who are, who are unashamedly worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Our worship to Him, sincere, lavish, praise, worship is a beautiful thing. That's how she worshiped. Mary did. Judas, by contrast, was angry. He was angry. He saw Mary's worship as wasteful. He feigned concern for the poor, and he wasn't really concerned for the poor at all. He was a thief. He was a hypocrite. He was a pretender. And there are those, there are those people who are hypocrites in their worship, who are pretenders, who pretend to love God and to worship God. But they're not really concerned about God. They're concerned about themselves. They're concerned about how will God bless me today. I don't like this church because I don't feel anything. You know, it's not about you feeling something. It's about you making the effort to worship the one and only God. Don't be a pretender. Don't be like Judas. You know, in our culture today, we name our daughters Mary and our dogs Judas. And maybe our dogs are too good for that name. So maybe you don't even have a dog named Judas. But people don't name their sons Judas. So who will you be? Mary or Judas? I mean, we didn't talk much about Judas. That wasn't our focus. But just know that he is the opposite of Mary. Who will you be? Can you make your life an altar of worship to God? 
Will you begin even today to offer God your most personal and extravagant worship? Will you abandon yourself to worshiping God? Can you imagine what your life would look like if you gave yourself to true worship of God? If you gave yourself to being a true worshiper of God, the one that Jesus said in John 4, the Father's looking for true worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. He's looking for that. Can you imagine what your life would look like if you gave yourself to that? Can you imagine what our church would look like if we gave ourselves to that? If we all became extravagant worshipers, if when a guest came in through those doors, they would see a people here, a group of people who are extravagantly worshiping God, who are offering to God the fruit of their own lips. What would that do to our church? How would that make an impact? I think it would make a big impact on people who would come and and join us. What would our community look like if, if all of us were true worshipers of God? I ask that question because I want you to envision it. I want you to envision a church in which its members are abandoned totally sold out to worshiping God, in which they are true worshipers. Make your life an altar of worship, and it will impact our community. Let's build an altar of worship in the heart of this Egypt, in the heart of San Angelo. And let it begin with you today.